0: Welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we are exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about being in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we're living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white people about our role in resistance and showing up in liberation? My name is Will Green. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith. Surge is a national network of groups and individuals. Organizing White People for Racial Justice. This podcast is designed to be a resource for white people working to resist racism and white supremacy. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback and accountability from listeners of color. This is the third time that I've contributed to the podcast. A little bit about me. I live on land that was inhabited by Wampanoag people before the Christian invasion of 1620. I'm a white cisgender gay male pronouns he him his. I'm also a United Methodist pastor who serves a congregation associated with that denomination and the United Church of Christ. I've been working in parish ministry for over 15 years. By way of introducing myself I'll also add that something that I care about very much and believe in is the abolition of prisons. Thanks for checking out this podcast. The lectionary reading that I've chosen to explore in this podcast comes from the book of Judges. Surprisingly, you don't hear much about the Book of Judges in a lot of churches, and that's for some pretty good reasons. The Book of Judges is a ruthless, violent, disturbing book about holy war and unholy war and sexual violence and all sorts of mutilation and awfully graphic ways of people killing each other. This book is nasty on just about every level. Almost all of it is way over the line. Having taught this book in a few different church settings, I can say it's pretty rough stuff to get the old Tuesday morning Bible study to address. The standard way of describing the overall structure of the book of Judges as a whole is to say that this is a story in which things go from very bad to indescribably bad, The final episodes in the book are literally too much, just too traumatic, too disgusting, too horrifying for some people to read it all, period. There are only some images in the entire Bible that can match Judges in terms of pure carnage. But when it comes to fully formed narratives in the Bible, there really aren't any complete stories with details and development that can really be compared to Judges, For once, I'm not exaggerating. Is Judges really that bad? Yes, it is. So it's no wonder that we don't dig into this book too much. But so far, everything I've said is just about the book on its own in general. There are also important implications for reading this book as a Christian. Specifically, the Christian historical record and present reality is so full of war, invasion, rape, and genocide, then it's understandable why people would not want to fixate on this book, or perhaps not even give it any attention or honor at all. Then again, the other way of looking at this is given our historical record and present reality, and the forms of oppression and structures of violence in our church, maybe we should read this book, even if our one goal is to dismantle and overcome its values. Frankly, Speaking for myself, I am a Bible person. I read the Bible every day. I can't seem to stop. I'm not advocating this for anyone else. It's just where I am personally. No judgment on anyone else or on myself, for that matter. Honestly, looking back, one of the main reasons my life has been so devoted to, this, to reading Scripture is because I was aware of how Scripture was being used against me as a gay person, and I wanted ammo, and defense, truth be told. And I'm well aware that God has worked through this process just the same, but still, that's at least partly how I've gotten so wrapped up in the Bible. Not ashamed of that. But if other people want to reject the Bible wholesale, or the Book of Judges in particular, fine, I have no problem with that at all. That's probably not a great way to introduce a Bible reading on a podcast dedicated to interpreting scripture, but nonetheless, that's honestly how I feel. Having said all of this by way of introduction, the reading is Judges, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, and I'm reading from the Common English Bible Translation. Here's the reading. After Ahud died, the Israelites, again, did things that the Lord saw as evil. So the Lord gave them over to King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, The commander of his army was Sisera, and he was stationed in Heresheth Hagolim. The Israelites cried out to the Lord because Sisera had 900 iron chariots and had oppressed the Israelites cruelly for 20 years. Now, Deborah, the prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was a leader of Israel at that time. She would sit under Deborah's palm tree between Ramah and Bethel in the Ephraim highlands, and the Israelites would come to her to settle disputes. She sent word to Barak, Abinoam's son from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Hasn't the Lord Israel's God issued you a command? Go and assemble at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 men from the people of Naphtali and Zebulun with you. I will lure Cesera, the commander of Jabin's army, to assemble with his chariots and troops against you at the Kishon River. And then I'll help you overpower him. There it is. That's the reading. It wasn't as bad as you thought it was going to be, was it? I'm guessing it was probably a little difficult to follow, but perhaps not morally disgusting. Let me call your attention to two things that are right in the first three verses of this fourth chapter of Judges. You can tell I'm a Bible person because I like saying the chapter and verse over and over again. Firstly, in verse 1, it says, The Israelites, again, did things that the Lord saw as evil. Okay, if your assumption or understanding is that the book of Judges unquestionably celebrates the Israelites as people whose religion places them beyond judgment from God or critique by people, then you need to think again. Because that idea is thrown out the window in the first verse of this reading. The Israelites did things that the Lord saw as evil. It even says the Israelites again did things that the Lord saw as evil. They did evil things again and again and again. Now, despite doing things that the Lord saw as evil, the story takes the perspective and point of view, centers the Israelites. The fact that evil things are done by them does not define their whole story. There's more to it than that. Things are more complicated than good people and bad people in this story. And that's an idea that Christianity is not always willing to consider. And this is the first thing I want to point out. Committing evil is not the end of the story. It's part of the story. It doesn't mean the people who did these things get banished or destroyed or are marked forever. We don't get stereotypical good people and bad people in this story. We get complicated truths that it can be frustrating to live with. People do evil things. I'm not going to get into a theological examination on the nature of evil. I'm not that smart. Or maybe I'm just too easily bored. Instead, think about what it means to live in a world where people do evil things. And going along with this, note that the Israelites, who have done things that God sees as evil, are also described as experiencing oppression. That's in verse 3. They were oppressed cruelly for 20 years. You might want to think, if you're a Christian, that this oppression is a form of judgment because of the evil things they did, but I don't think it says that. I don't think that's entirely spelled out in the text. I don't know, and I don't want to dwell on it, and I'm not trying to suggest an allegorical analogy with other contexts. I'm just putting it out there that people do things that are evil. Also, people, sometimes the same people, also experience very real oppression. This isn't about good people and bad people, heroes and villains. It's a story about the complicated truth of evil and oppression as real things in the world. The second thing I want to call our attention to is about this oppression. The Israelites were oppressed by the commander named Sisera, who had 900 iron chariots. There is a fixation in this story about these 900 iron chariots. Did you catch, did did that detail catch your attention when I read it earlier? The Israelites cried out to the Lord because Sisera had 900 iron chariots and had oppressed the Israelites cruelly for 20 years. Let's dwell on this. Iron chariots are powerful weapons, and the Israelites did not have access to even one. So Sarah had nine hundred. This is the second time that iron chariots are mentioned in the book of Judges. They're mentioned in chapter 1, verse 19. Iron chariots are also mentioned in the book of Joshua a few times. Whenever iron chariots are mentioned, they're mentioned for a purpose. It's not just a useless detail. Iron chariots describe the bigger, meaner, more elaborate and powerful weaponry of somebody else's army that the Israelites are up against. The point here is that the Israelites are completely outmatched in terms of access to weapons and other warfare technologies. Now I'm going to make a jump to our own context. I can't read about these 900 iron chariots or any of the iron chariots Without thinking about the power of police, militaries, and privatized security forces that oppress and crush people in our day, in our world. Like in the case of 900 iron chariots up against people who are fighting on foot, there is no competition in terms of access to weapons and resources Reading Judges 4 and the mention of iron chariots and the story of ancient Israel, it makes me think of the stories I first learned about in reading a book by Radley Balco called Rise of the Warrior Cop. Maybe you know it. It's about the militarization of police forces in the United States and the connection between the militarization, as we say, of police forces and colonial, the colonial power of the United States abroad. So reading about Cicera's resources reminds me of army tanks in the streets of Ferguson. Reminds me of mounted police on horses intimidating protesters. It reminds me of SWAT teams storming schools. How much force do you really need? How great does the power imbalance really have to be? At what point is it clearly the goal not winning physical battles, but total domination and control. As I read Judges chapter 4, I think, did Cesara really need 900 iron chariots? Makes me think of how the goal is not to keep anybody safe. The goal is to crush the oppressed completely. The connection, the, the connection I'm drawing is the totality of oppression that comes with the threat of completely crushing people, 900 iron chariots. Remember, the Israelites have done things that God sees as evil. That does not mean they deserve the force of 900 iron chariots riding over them. Whatever we make of the book of Judges, it's worth, it's worth thinking about these 900 iron chariots, okay, that's the last time I'll say it, and the power they represent. The parallels with the technologies that crush people today are not hard to make. Okay, moving on. Uh, In the reading, uh, this, having said a few things about the first three verses, in verse 4, we meet the woman that this story is named for, the prophet Deborah. Deborah's role in this story is to call people to participate in a fight. She gets people to fight in a war that needs to be fought. Now, I know this idea is offensive to many people. White people have been raised to believe that fighting is bad. We should be nice. We should not fight. Mean people fight. This is a big point in Christian churches. Be nice. Of course, fighting actual wars is fine in these same churches, but it's using aggressive or impassioned language that's seen as the height of Incivility and unchristian behavior. You know what this is like. Reflecting on Deborah's leadership in light of our call to fight white supremacy can be helpful. I just want to say that fighting white supremacy is a fight. It is a fight. We need to know that. The stakes are very high, the violence is very real. This is a fight. I think that just as some people might not, might not want to read the book of Judges or think about it at all because it's unpleasant and disturbing to, de- to them, likewise some people are not able to be anti-racist and to fight the forces that are crushing people because it's pleasant, unpleasant, and disturbing. Fighting racism is unpleasant and disturbing, I think, it's because racism is unpleasant and disturbing. Now, there's definitely joy and beauty in this, too. Absolutely. By the way, you can read chapter 5 of Judges. You'll see that the the same story that's told in chapter 4 is told in chapter 5 in the form of a poem or a song. And the reason I bring this up is because it makes me think there's also art and creativity and aesthetics in the struggle, too. Absolutely. But also, sometimes we need to be able to say, this is a fight. Now, think of the chant that uh, you might have learned in the streets, like I did, the call is, when black lives are under attack, what do we do? And the response is, of course, stand up, fight back. When black lives are under attack, what do we do? Stand up, fight back. Now, the answer to that call, when black lives are under attack, what do we do? The answer is not, we ask the leaders to use less violent-sounding phrases because our feelings are more important than what other people are suffering under. That, that doesn't work. That's, that's not it. We say, stand up, fight back. Fight back. There's something for me that resonates with this simple truth in the story of Deborah calling people into battle. Let me ask you, are you someone who has been called into battle against racism? Maybe someone who has been called into battle by a wise woman who understands the consequences of rising to the challenge. Are you able and willing to fight? Even if you are afraid and know that you cannot do it on your own. I'm jumping ahead here. Uh, I stopped reading at verse seven, where Deborah calls Barak to fight. In verse eight, we read, Barak was afraid. In verse 8, he says to Deborah, I'll go only if you go. And then Deborah says, oh, I'll definitely go too. But you need to know that you're not going to be bringing honor on yourself in this fight. Because Deborah says, it's another woman like me, not a male warrior like you, Barak, who will complete this deed that you were beginning on on the battlefield. And that, as they say, is another story. If you... If you want to read verses 8 and 9 and the rest of the story of Judges chapter 4, then you should read the Bible. Go right ahead and read the book of Judges. But very simply, in this reading, Deborah's leadership is an expression of the need to follow the leadership of brave women. This is a message white people need to hear, to learn, to accept. We need to overcome the white patriarchy we have been taught and maybe Deborah can help us reflect, as we reflect on her story, with imagination and with hope and with openness. The forces of patriarchy diminish our ability to trust, to hope, and to be brave. The story of Deborah can help. Deborah calls Barack to fight a fight that he does not want to fight, but he trusts her faith that the oppressors can be overpowered, and all Barack has to do is not let his own hunger for honor get in the way of that vision. I also need to say, and this is a bit of a aside, but I cannot resist, there is simple joy and delight for me in the fact that this biblical story that is so rarely read, as I keep calling our attention to, is about a character named Barak. And, of course, because it makes me think of President Barack Obama. And it's not that I'm enamored with President Obama at all. The only thing I want to say is that I remember when Barack Obama was rising to great fame. And I remember the stunning foolishness of so many white people who just could not pronounce his name. People were tongue-tied and terrified by the idea of a person named Barack. And, of course, so many people said, he has a Muslim name. Friends, I know I'm a decade late in getting to this party and ranting about this, but I just want to say, his name is in the Christian Bible. If you read the book, you might not be so shocked and disturbed by his name. I'm just saying, sometimes we learn something when we read the Bible. Sometimes. It may be nothing more profound than simply being exposed to some names that we can at least try to pronounce. We are not good at saying people's names. We're not even good at trying to say people's names. This is a pretty low bar I'm setting for us here, but why not? We have to start somewhere. So, these are my thoughts about this reading. In conclusion, here's what I have to share. First, it might be worth reading, Judges. It is worth considering that people who do things that are evil are capable of other things, too. This is a principle of transformative justice. In prison abolitionist circles, we say, no one should be defined by the worst thing they have ever done. Also, it's worth reflecting and being aware of the grotesque expressions of military domination that are not meant to protect anybody, but are meant to crush the oppressed. Also, we need to work at following the leadership and trusting the faith of women. We need to know that in a fight, you need to stand up and fight back. And I'm just going to say, because of my, my Methodist heart, Jesus understands. When black lives are under attack, what do we do? Stand up, fight back. Second to last point. Before you complain about how hard people's names are to pronounce, read the Bible. And finally, thank God for wise women like Deborah who give leadership that is so dearly needed. Sisters, don't get- going to feature a conversation about the national holiday that takes place on the fourth Thursday of November. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the Freedom Movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. The title is We Are Building Up A New World. The group you hear singing is called No Enemies. They're a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice. And they're bringing singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're deeply grateful to the freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast.